Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kustler coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to listen to is Class 2, Part 1. This is a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. The title of the class was The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. This is Class 2, Part 1. Okay, well, now this this is a confusing, or can be a confusing part of Buddhism. If I'm walking down the street and I step on some ants, and I kill them, but I didn't see them, I didn't intend to kill them, are there any consequences for me killing those ants? Anybody have a, a guess? We have one no. We have one yes. They're dead, whether you intended that or not. Okay. Any idea? Okay. 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 Well, the answer is the answer is no. That's you don't you don't have any consequences if you kill them by mistake. If you unintendedly you're walking down the street and you step on them and they're dead. There there uh, are no bad consequences to that action. Now let me explain in some forms of spirituality, uh, it doesn't matter if you intend it or not. Consequences are going to be there all the time. And the Jains or the Giants uh, oftentimes wear masks over their face so they don't inhale any microbes, you know, so they don't have to kill those microbes and stuff. And some of them go as far as to stop eating because they're really working hard to purify themselves. Well, of course, the problem when you stop eating is that you die. And I don't know if that's a good outcome of your spiritual practice to die. So there are some forms of spirituality that say, yes, whether you intended to or not, you are liable. There are consequences. But in Buddhism, my understanding is that uh, that's not the case. Now, I, at the center, uh, sometimes in in the summer, will um, unknowingly step on a snail. It's dark, you know, and I'm just sort of walking between houses, and then I hear this crack. It's the worst sound. And I always feel bad, because I, 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 I like snails. I'm not a gardener, so I don't care if they eat all the plants and stuff. But uh, it just makes me feel bad, because I wasn't uh, aware enough to miss the snail. I, wasn't, I didn't have a flashlight. I wasn't looking. I didn't even think about it until I heard that sound. Um, so uh, even though... Karmically, there are no consequences. I still feel bad because I, I took that life. They're dead, whether I intended that to be the case or not. So uh, um, I suppose Buddhism um, is pretty logical when it comes to that and, and, and pretty uh, also lawful because if you are arrested because of an accident you had, the penalty will be less, but if it's premeditated murder the penalty is greater. And so it sort of works like that. So how would you get karmic consequences in Buddhism? Well, you'd have to intend to kill the snail. And then you'd have to sort of plot out what you're going to do. And then you have to be successful in doing that. 
And once all those things are completed, the consequences become yours. But if along the way, say you intend it and plot it, but don't follow through with killing the snail, then there are no consequences, you know, uh, to speak of. Uh, there's still the problem with uh, you wanting to kill, which would be an issue, but it didn't manifest in the world. So, so along the way, if we intend to do harm to someone, that may create a little wave of karmic consequence, but nothing really to speak of. If we voice it or act it out, then the consequences increase dramatically. So I suppose our job is to uh, prevent those intentions, those unskillful intentions of ours, from manifesting into the world, from manifesting into speech and action. So I, I hope that was a, good, a better explanation I gave you last week. That was a good question. I like that question. Does anybody else have a question of last week, of what I said? Anything stick with you, confuse you, make you thoughtful, stimulate you? Okay, good. I'm, I'm working with a, a clean slate then. Okay. Well, as you know, after listening to me last week, um, the Eightfold Path can be put into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. And we're going to spend this class speaking about personal discipline. We're going to spend the next two classes speaking about mental purification, which will be meditation. And then the last class, we're going to talk about the wisdom aspects of the Eightfold Path and, and how to integrate those path factors into our everyday life. So I, I think it will work well um, laid out that way. And if you noticed... If you noticed on the webpage, uh, there are two ebooks. One is written by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and one is written by Jack Cornfield. And actually, one was written and one was spoken, and then this is the transcript from the, from the treat. Now, what I like about these two uh, interpretations of the Eightfold Path is this. Um, Jack Cornfield used to be a monk, but now he's a well-respected lay teacher in Northern California. So he has very much a lay perspective on what the eight path factors mean. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is an American monk in the Theravada tradition, well-respected scholar monk. And, and he, so his approach is, is um, different when he describes, when he explains the Eightfold Path. So you have a lay perspective and you have an ordained perspective of the Eightfold Path. And for me, I thought that was sort of interesting. You may not, you know, see it as being a marvelous, you know, uh, contrast, but it is a contrast, and there are many ways to approach the Eightfold Path. Now, let me just go through the path factors real quick, one more time, and then specifically get into some of these path factors, and I'm going to give you some stories, some personal stories and stories I've heard. And, and maybe you'll have some stories, too. Maybe I'll stimulate you to think about how personal discipline has affected you in a positive way or maybe a not-so-positive way. So the eight, path, path, the eight path factors are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. 
Those eight path factors can be put into three categories. Personal discipline, morality and ethics, mental purification, wisdom, uh, pardon me, meditation, both concentration and insight, samatha and vipassana. And finally, the last category is the wisdom category, and that has two path factors, right view and right intention. So in the personal discipline category of the Eightfold Path, we have three path factors. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So I'm going to talk about those at great length tonight. And, and this literally is the foundation of Buddhist meditation practice. You will not gain much without a foundation of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. You may fail miserably without that foundation. And, and when, when I say right, I really need to go into what is right and wrong in Buddhism. What is good and bad in Buddhism? Because what you're about to hear may surprise you. We don't have right and wrong in Buddhism. We don't have good and bad in Buddhism. And why is that the case? Because we lack a divine lawgiver. We lack God to define for us on the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. We don't have a Moses. We don't have anyone to petition. We can't ask for forgiveness. There's no redemption. We're stuck. Stuck taking responsibility for what we think, what we say, and what we do. Now, as I explain these path factors, I need to, to clarify my perspective, and that will be, I'm coming from the early Buddhist school of Theravada. Almost everything I talk about has to do with a sort of early Buddhist perspective. So if you were going to take a class on Christianity, I would be like the Catholic guy. you know. And, and then you'd have the reform movement in Christianity and the Protestants. And, and sometimes the Protestants look at stuff a lot differently than the Catholics. And one of the reasons that's the case... I think is because of the ordination and the celibacy. You know, they live in community, the Catholics, for the most part. Protestants live in the world, for the most part, a lot of them. Catholics have a central authority that sort of defines what they do and can't do. Protestants, you know, every little church on the corner has its own authority. It's sort of interesting. I have always been attracted to early Buddhism, the Indian Buddhism, the Orthodox Buddhism, because for some reason I always thought that was better, because that was the first one. And that's just sort of how my mind works. I, I'm simple when it comes to these things. A lot of people really like Zen, and most of the people at the center where I live are Zen people. And, and they have... They have uh, little patience with me speaking the early Buddhist, you know, uh, stuff because they feel it is, it's, it's so, you know, out of date. It's not, it's not, it's not in style to be orthodox and conservative. Zen seems to give permission sometimes 
permission to have really interesting lifestyles. And if you were back in the 50s with Jack Kerouac and, and, uh, and some of the other Dharma bums, uh, Allen Ginsberg, you might have thought that being a Zen person gave you permission to be a hedonist or a heathen, you know, or a beat kind of guy. And, and, and that was a misinterpretation. Uh, Zen is a very disciplined form of meditation. It isn't doing anything you want to do. It's really sitting for very long periods of time in, in deep reflection and concentration and insight and eating at the same time and getting up at the same time and going to sleep at the same time and having no outside interests other than the focus on your object of meditation. So it's not about writing poetry or having three girlfriends. Zen. But I like the orthodox stuff because it was really laid out in a way that I could understand it. It was just like one, two, three, four. We got the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the seven factors of enlightenment, the twelve-linked chain of causation. And then you just have to memorize what the links or the numbers mean. And all of a sudden in your head is this wonderful model, this wonderful paradigm that arises. And what you start to see, if you continue investigating it from that perspective, is you start to see how all those things are connected. You start to see the thread that connects all the teachings of the Buddha. Now, in Buddhism, the thread is called the sutra. It's a sutra. In English, you know, sutra. I thought that was sort of cool. And then I found out Indo-European background with our languages. I'm going, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of similar, that I completely overlooked until I started to read and meditate and reflect. So perhaps by the end of this class, you too will see the thread that ties all the different schools of Buddhism together, all the different teachings of Buddhism together. There is a connection between all of that. It's the thread. The hardest thing to find because it seems so convoluted sometimes. It seems so separate sometimes. It makes absolutely no sense sometimes. I have digressed. Let me go back to that original uh, thought that I had, which was, we don't have good and bad. We don't have good and bad, right and wrong. So what we have instead, and this is really important, what we have instead is skillful, unskillful, more suffering, less suffering. That's how we determine if we are skillful in what we think, skillful in what we say, and skillful in what we do. Now, when I first came to this, I thought, well, aren't there, isn't there anything sort of like in stone that's always right and always wrong? Are all the laws we have today in our culture arbitrary? Did we make them all up? Well, you know, I thought back to the 70s. I, I, I'm a little older than some of you. And when our, the last time we were having trouble finding gas, you know, uh, we reduced the speed limit to 55, so we'd use less gas. We had odds and evens. You'd go buy your license plate, and then you'd only get 10 gallons. If you wanted more than 10 gallons, you'd have to go to another gas station. But only on the day, only on the odd day or the even day. Now... We seem to have plenty of gas, at least so far, even though it's a bit more expensive. And so we have speed limits at 65. 
So at one point in our life in Los Angeles, if you went over 55, you were breaking the law. Now if you go over 65, you're breaking the law. Okay, is that right or wrong? Is that arbitrary? Are those made? Why do these laws happen? I thought to myself. And are all these laws, are there any laws that sort of say, you know, this is an overriding law. You have the laws of the society or the culture or the tribe you live in, but then there are these, these laws that even go beyond that. And when I looked at the five precepts of a Buddhist, I saw some of those. And to refresh your memory, the five precepts are not to take life. Well, in most cultures, that's pretty much, you know, not to take life unless there's a reason, unless you're justified. You know, we always seem to be able to find justification for taking life, which is unfortunate, I think. But we, that sort of seems to be like one of those big laws that sort of everybody can recognize. And why would a Buddhist look at that as being skillful? It seems to be a law of the heart and not just of the mind. And it also seems to be a law that reduces suffering. So it's skillful. That if you're not out killing, you're not out creating more suffering. For yourself, because of karma, but also for the thing that you're killing. And, and I thought, yeah, that is so cool. You know, can I go through the day without killing? Yeah, most of the time, pretty good. So snails, you know, at night. The next precept is uh, not to take what is not given. And in most cultures, most societies, we, we own stuff. That's part of the game. You know, we're encouraged to own stuff. We're encouraged to own a lot of stuff. Some people have so much stuff, they have storage lockers for the excess stuff. Good for the economy. Good for America. Bad for us. Because now we have to clean it and dust it, maybe insure it if it has a value, find a good home for it if we need to give it, give it away, or sell it. And then we go to Craigslist or some other place, have to go through all that, take a picture of it, describe it, maybe haggle a little bit in the price. It's not easy to own stuff. Sexual misconduct. If we have partners, um, we need to be skillful in how we express our sexuality. Not taking other partners. Not, not um, being... Uh, unkind to your partner or your friend. And I'm going to use the word partner because I'm from the old school of husband and wife, but now it's like 2007. And so it means a whole lot of different things to different people. And so I find partners works pretty good. Though I oftentimes refer to husband and wife, so if I do that, it's just because I'm over 50 and you just please uh, forgive my uh, rigidity in looking at the world sometimes. Not to lie. Not to lie is the fourth precept. And then the fifth precept is not to consume intoxicants, which, of course, steals all our wisdom. And even if you have a Ph.D. from LMU, after two cases of beer, you're illiterate. You know? So uh, there's nothing wrong with drinking, it's just getting drunk that's the problem. 
And one of my favorite blues guys, Albert Collins, the master of the Telecaster, had a song that said, I ain't drunk, I just been drinking. And I, I like that because a lot of people give themselves permission to drink as long as they don't get intoxicated. And at our center, if you take the fifth precept from us, we would give it to you that way. You know, don't drink to the point of intoxication. And when you get good at that, then you go to the next level of not consuming any intoxicants at all. Though I must admit, in Buddhism, it pretty much just deals with sort of drugs and alcohol, those intoxicants. We don't talk about TV or magazines or videos, though Thich Nhat Hanh has sort of stretched it to include all of that stuff as well. But I find if I'm having a bad day, there's nothing better than a couple hostess cupcakes and a big glass of milk. You know, and that sugar and chocolate gets in my bloodstream and life seems okay again. So there's all sorts of ways to intoxicate ourselves, that's for sure. So what are these three path factors? How can we understand them? How can we use them in our everyday life? And, and how do they apply to karma? Because karma is the big deal now. Karma is, is what Buddhism is sort of about. If we are skillful, practicing Buddhists, we are actually transforming our karma. We are transforming our karma. We are changing how we think, we are changing what we say, and we're changing how we do it. Whatever comes out of this body or mouth or mind, that's karma. Karma is everything we think. Karma is everything we say. Karma is everything we do. Now, this is how I look at it. And again, I'm a simple guy, and I need easily understood models or metaphors, and this is what I came up with, that there's this sort of energy in the world. It's always been there. And, and some great person, maybe it was Einstein, said, you can't create energy, you can't destroy energy, you can only transform energy. So now I'm looking at this energy in the world. It's all around us. It's inside of us. It's outside of us. And we are sort of like transformers, living transformers. We're taking that energy that has no value at all. It's not good energy or bad energy. It's just energy. And we are transforming the energy when we think. We are transforming the energy when we speak. We are transforming the energy when we act. And now we're taking that neutral energy, we're transforming it, and we're giving it a value. We're giving it a value of skillful or unskillful energy that is now going out into the world. And the consequences of the skillful or unskillful energy we call vipaka, cause and consequence, karma vipaka. Another interesting aspect, I think, about this karmic energy that we transform every moment of every day because we're always thinking, some of us are always talking, and most of us are always doing something. Even in sleep, we're rolling over. That energy lives long after we leave this world. That's the one thing that's reborn in the next lifetime, according to the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada. So we don't have reincarnation in Buddhism, we have rebirth. And what's being reborn is the karmic energy we've been transforming our whole lifetime. All that energy, everything we've said, 
and done and thought about has created a sort of stream of karmic energy. And when this body dies, when this transformation body dies, this energy is now in the universe seeking another rebirth. And they call this energy Gandhava in early Buddhism. That is the language of Pali, the canonical language of the Theravada. Uh, uh, it's Gandhava. Uh-huh. And I can, I can send you it in an email how it's spelled, but... Uh, <laughs> when we are born, it is said, a Gandhava, sperm and egg come together and form union. And a new life begins. And if it's just sperm and egg without the karmic energy from a past lifetime, it doesn't work, according to Buddhism. So that should lead you to understand that um, conception is when life starts, according to Buddhism. Because it's the sperm, the egg, and the karmic energy from a past lifetime. Now, sometimes people ask me why I'm here, why I was born, and I tell them I was born because my parents had sex and I had karma. And I showed up. Now, the point, though, of course, in that is not why I'm here, but what am I going to do while I'm here? That's the most important issue in my life. I can't do anything about my parents or my past karma. That's already been put in, in, in place. So now I've got a, this new life with some consequences from the past karma manifesting in this lifetime, but a whole lot of new karma being created moment by moment, and I should have a much different outcome if I'm skillful. Or if I'm unskillful, I'll have a different outcome as well. Now, have you ever wondered why some people might be born into a very well-off family and then some people aren't? Some of that might have to do with karma. But have you seen these people that weren't born into a really good environment and somehow, through their own effort or wisdom, or compassion changed their life and became these wonderful human beings that we all can look at and, and marvel at. And then we had some of these people who were born and seemed to have everything anybody would ever want and they just ruined it. They just made so many bad choices. There's that Revlon guy from um, Ventura or something. I think he was part of the Revlon family and he ended up giving uh, drinks to young women that were laced with... Maybe Max Factor, was that it? Okay. Yeah. And so here he, this guy had a pretty good life until he was unskillful. And, and now he's in jail for a really long time. So we are in control of our life. We do not have to be a victim. It doesn't matter where we started from. What matters is what we do today. And that's what I like about Buddhism. That's a very powerful message for me. So it's all about me and what I do right now. And that will change dramatically what happens next. So if I'm skillful, there's a good chance pleasant consequences are right around the corner. If I'm unskillful, there's a real good chance some unpleasant consequences are right around the corner. But I can't blame anybody else. I've got to look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm in charge. This is my life. This is my karma. What am I going to do with that? So these, this first category deals with our speech karma and our action karma. It deals with what we say and what we do. And then next week, 
How do we change what we think? We're going to have two weeks of meditation. Yes. Jonathan. There, there is no reincarnation. There's only there's rebirth. Rebirth. So what's reincarnation? Mm. Thank you for noticing. Reincarnation requires a soul. And we don't have one. Now, if you have a soul, I'm not going to tell you you don't have one. That's up to you. But the Buddha said, uh, we don't have anything that's unchanging and independent. And, and he did it more for, for philosophical reasons than theological reasons. And what I mean by that is this. If you think you have an unchanging soul that reincarnates for a very long time until you finally get it right, each lifetime is a teaching lifetime, and you're the student, and eventually you pass and don't have to be reborn anymore, you may take some of those lifetimes not as seriously as they need to be taken. You may do a couple really unskillful things in a few lifetimes, thinking to yourself, well, I've got all these hundreds of thousands of lifetimes to make up for these little indiscretions in this lifetime. And the Buddha saw that as a problem. He also saw a big problem in nihilism. When, when you look at yourself and say, well, I don't have a soul, so it really doesn't matter what I do, because I'm just going to feed the trees when I die anyway. No consequences there. Well, so now we have to come to this conclusion that he really didn't say, we don't have a soul. What he really said, which now comes out in the 80s and 90s and the 07s, he was saying we are not the soul, if there is a soul. He was saying we are not the self. He was saying, as far as self goes, that self is a process. It's a process that occurs because we have a mind and because we have a body. But if you identify with that process you will eventually become unskillful and you will not have good mental health and you will be um, driven by attachment and craving. You'll be stimulated by lust and greed and hatred and delusion and consequences will follow you through many lifetimes if you identify with that thing we call self. And the problem with self is the fact that self cannot see clearly enough to understand reality the way it really is, and it gives us a false impression of separation and security or fear that's not really based on what's happening right now in this present moment. Oftentimes, self uses past experiences or education to define what's happening right now or to look into the future. And, and if that's the case... Um, this present moment isn't getting through that story. That story has created a buffer that doesn't allow the reality of the present moment to sort of come to us. So I, I like that idea that, that the Buddha was, was wise enough and confident enough in India 2,500 years ago to go against the Brahmin tradition and say, no, 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 this isn't about the soul. This isn't about the self. So, 
So their view was that the soul was unchanging? You, you couldn't have a changing soul? Or a, a yes, the early Hindu, the Brahmins, they had this idea that the soul was about the size of your thumb and looked pretty much like you did. And it would change the vessels, but the soul itself, the little thumb guy, would stay the same. And then eventually, that little piece of soul, that little fragment, would go back to the great mothership, the great soul. And the journey was over. It was, it was done. And, and the Buddha saw that as being a problem. Now, our journey is over, not when that fragment of a soul reaches the great mothership, but when we achieve nirvana and purify ourselves. We pure ourselves. The Buddhist path is a path of purification, a path of renunciation. But not ourself. But not ourself. And because I'm speaking in English, and because I need to be able to refer to myself as self, me, mine, and you... Consciousness, karma? Huh? Could it be consciousness, our consciousness, or our... Well, we can use a lot of terms, but it gets confusing. So we just have to realize that when I speak about self, it's a relative reality. And this ultimate reality, self, does not apply. But this is a relative reality class. We're not going to venture into the ultimate reality, probably, at least not tonight, maybe next week when we get to meditation. But right now, we're going to be stuck in relative reality. So you're just going to have to bear with me and try and translate when I say, I don't have a self, but I'm doing fine today. So who's doing fine? Well, no self is doing fine. And so, you know, I could sound schizophrenic. I could sound like I need therapy if I'm not skillful in, in how I speak. So I, we just, you know, convention, the convention. So uh, we don't have a self. It's not us. But there is a process that we call self. We may not have a soul, if we do have a soul, the Buddha would say that's not who you really are. Because even though you can't see it, that soul is changing all the time. There's nothing that doesn't change. There's nothing that stands independent from the constant flux and, and change we find in this world of samsara. Now, Tuesday night at UCLA at the Buddhist Club, I was relating a story that happened to me on Monday. And one of the students said, well, it sounds like you... You just want us to accept things how they are and not want and not be surprised when they change. That that that's just how it is, and and it's not going to change. It's never going to get better or worse. Sort of ultimate reality. And I said, Oh no, it doesn't work that way at all. It really works this way: that you come to a, a place of acceptance with it always changing. That it's an illusion that what you really are trying to attach to is solid and unchanging and available to you. There's nothing that exists that you can hold or grasp onto. Not even yourself. You're always in a constant state of flux. And and I think she got it. But isn't that interesting that we see certain things as being unchanging? Do you know? American flag, what the American flag stands for? Wow, that changes all the time. You know? How about America? Is America ever changing? Always changing. Who's in, who's in office? Who's here? Who's not here? It's always changing. Everything. I look in the mirror. Some days I'm looking pretty good. Other days shouldn't even leave the house. I'm always changing. You know? Some days I feel pretty good. Some days, you know, every joint aches. Well, where can I stand where things don't change? Is there ever a refuge for me? 
an unchanging refuge, only one, according to Buddhism, and that's nirvana. That's the unborn, the undying. The Buddha, in one of his talks, said, I teach the path to immortality. And, you know, a lot of people just sort of want to live forever. I'm not sure why, but they do. And so here the Buddha comes out and says, I teach the path, a path to immortality. A lot of people signed up. But what he was really saying was this. I'm not going to teach a path that prevents you from dying, because everything that's born has to die in this world. I'm going to tell you how not to be reborn again. That's how you're going to be immortal. Well, I, I don't know a lot of people who would get on that bandwagon, because that just sounds like sort of a downer. I don't ever want to be reborn again. Why would that be? Well, that's so you don't have to ever suffer again. And we're going to get there. We'll get there. So now let's get into these right speech, right action, right livelihood. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase our suffering. They are false, malicious, harsh, and gossip or idle chatter. Those kinds of speech prevent harmony. They don't allow us to feel comfortable with the people who are speaking. Because now we might have to question our understanding of reality if they're lying to us. What if they're telling us one thing and it's really another? How are we going to know what's real? Are they undermining our reality by lying to us? They surely are. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to call them a liar? Well, probably not. Most of us are courteous enough not to do that. But have you ever questioned your own reality? After somebody told you something, maybe they said, well, I'll meet you here, and, and you showed up, and they didn't, and you go, did, did they say meet me here? Is this the right place? What address? You know? And that just happened to me Monday. I was in a state of questioning my reality all day. And it was so uncomfortable. And, and it worked like this. I got a call from Orange County Register, a woman in Orange County, works for the newspaper out there, wants to do a profile of me and go on a ride-along, police ride-along. So I call the police department, talk to Lieutenant Prince. Lieutenant Prince says, this woman who wants to do an article. Can, can I get a car arranged and we'll go out on a ride-along on Monday? No problem, Kusla. We'll have the car for you. Anybody you want to ride along with? I said, oh, no, you, you, you pick the officer. That's fine. Anybody you pick is going to be okay with us. And I was supposed to meet her at a vegetarian restaurant in Little Saigon, Westminster. And I got the address, and I got the name, and I had the time, and I drove down to Westminster. And I'm sitting in this vegetarian restaurant. Now, I eat chili cheeseburgers, so I, I'm not used to these healthy people and healthy food. But I'm sitting there, I get a glass of tea, and it's 11.30, and that's when she was supposed to be there. And now it's 11.45, and she's still not there. And now it's 12 o'clock, she still didn't show up. And I literally got up from the table, I walked outside, and looked at the address. You know, I'm starting to question my reality. Is this the right place? I checked the name, I checked the address, I checked the time. It's, yep. Yeah. And, and I knew I was right. I knew I was right. Did she lie to me? Did she have an accident? 
why couldn't she have emailed me? Couldn't she have called me? Well, 12 o'clock, I decided to eat. I had my vegetarian meal. And now I'm in Westminster, and Garden Grove is right next door. So I said to myself, I'm going to go on a ride-along. It's been a while since I've been on one. So I went down to the police department. I had my chaplain's uniform on. I brought my bulletproof vest with me. And I said, Sergeant, I'm here for the ride-along. Ah, it looks like you've been stood up, Kusla. Sergeant said to me. I go, yeah, something happened. I don't know where she is. But I'm here. So can you can I go on the ride along? He said, sure. Got the car right there. Officer came in, really nice guy, named Rich, 25 years old. God, their officers are young these days, you know. <laughs> so we had a wonderful ride along. We talked about his education. He's got student loans for 30 years to pay off. He really likes his job. He's learned so much about the human condition, being a police officer in Garden Grove. And so I did the ride along. I got back. I'm driving to the center, and I'm thinking to myself, why didn't she call me? You know, I just, you know, and and it was, she was wrong. I said to myself at one point, I'm never going to do an interview again. This stuff is just too frustrating. So I get to the center, I get in my room, I turn on my computer, I go through all the emails she sent me. It's next Monday. It was the wrong day. And, and I knew I was right. And I thought to myself, what did I put myself through for these past eight, nine, ten hours? All this questioning, all this reality rechecking and rechecking. And I only needed to use two words, and I could have deflated all of that. I could have had a good day if I only remembered these two words. And these two words are, don't. No. Why isn't she here? I don't know. Why isn't she here with you on the wrong line? I don't know. And you know, when you don't know, it really allows you to be kind to all those in the world with you. There's no position you can take in being right or wrong when you don't know. And then I remembered this story that Jack Cornfield told many years ago on retreat. He said there was this little Jewish rabbi in this Russian town. And every day at exactly the same time, he would walk across the town square. So one day, the police chief in this little Russian town was going to be a rascal. And he stopped the rabbi and said, where are you going, rabbi? The rabbi said, don't know. And the police chief took a step back and said, every day you walk across this town square at exactly the same time and you don't know where you're going? He said, don't know. I'm taking you to jail. Put the rabbi in the jail. As he's closing the cell door, the rabbi says, see, don't know. And that came to me. We don't know, do we? We have all these plans. We've got the schedules, we've got the to-do list, we've got the calendar on the wall, we've got, some of us have PDAs, and yet we really don't know, do we? So I could have saved myself a lot of anguish and frustration if I had just said those two words to myself a couple times. Life, don't know. 
as we speak, I find speech happens so quickly that it is easy to be unskillful. It is easy, easy to be harsh in the way you approach someone or something or a topic. It's easy to be cavalier about an important issue that everybody in the room is really concerned about, and yet you don't seem to care. It's easy to actually lie because it's not such a big deal if it's a little lie, and it's not such a big deal if the lie helps the person you're lying to, is it? That's not really lying, is it? Aren't you just being a good person in not sharing the truth? You know? So what I found when I started to investigate right speech, I started to look at what I said and how I said it, and how it affected the people I spoke to, but also how it affected me. And, and if I want to live in harmony with those in my community, and Buddhism is about living together in harmony, then I need to be a little more cautious in what I say. I need to be really clear on the opinions I have about things and not think that they're ultimate reality or even true. And most importantly, I need to be clear about my humor, which I pride myself in having a good sense of humor. But unfortunately, my humor doesn't make everybody laugh. And, and a perfect example of this is I was in New Mexico. I don't remember if I told this story. I was in New Mexico giving a presentation at a medical convention. And I was talking about trying to love everybody. And I said, I'm trying to love everybody so hard, I even have a picture of Bush on my altar. And, and I forgot to check the map to see if this was a blue state or a red state. Well, New Mexico is not a blue state, I found out. And a woman's hand went right up after I said that. I said, yes. She said, why didn't you vote? And I thought to myself, oh, what have I done? And I said, I did vote, but it didn't work. <laughs> Getting even worse. And so I, I realized that, uh, you know, my job wasn't to be funny. It wasn't to you know, uh, have a political perspective or share my feelings on my political... My job was there to share information. And, and I find humor is sort of a, a nice way to get the information, if it really is humor. It's like sugarcoating a, a bad-tasting pill. But if it's only funny to half the people in the room, it doesn't work. I, I've lost my audience. So speech is... Is, is for me difficult sometimes to, to be aware of because I speak so much. You know, when I, we've got five minutes before a break, so I, I'm being careful on the breaks now. When I get up in front of a class, I mean, I can literally speak two, three, four hours. And sometimes I go on automatic pilot and I really don't even listen to what I say. You know? And then, if I've recorded it and listened to what I've said, I'm going, oh my gosh, how could I have said that? And you can't ever go back to the same class on the same day in the same moment and right the wrongs of unskillful speech. Sometimes you're apologizing the rest of your life for something you've said. And I'm going, wow, the Buddha was right. If we want to be skillful, we really need to be careful in what we say 
and how we say it. So if you speak to a, a, a well-disciplined monk or nun, just about the only thing they're going to talk about is the Dharma. You can ask them all the personal questions you want, and they're not going to share their life with you. That could turn out to be unskillful speech. They're going to share the Dharma with you. That's always skillful speech. That always leads to less suffering. But relating personal stories or, or insights is an iffy proposition. You may be creating more suffering rather than less, like I did in New Mexico. So I, I'm careful, but not perfect. And, and I do blunder sometimes in what I say and how I say it. And at least I'm to the point in my practice where I become aware of it, I reflect on it, and I try to prevent myself from doing the exact same thing again. I might do it in a similar way, but not exactly that way. And then one day, if I keep practicing and keep reflecting, I won't do it at all. Now, if you get a chance to listen to a lot of the podcasts on the Internet, you'll find some really good teachers up there. But some of them are pretty boring because they have such good speech, such right speech. There's no interesting stories. There's just a sort of soft drone of their voice that allows you to see how peaceful Buddhism really is. And, and uh, so if you have a problem going to sleep at night, those are good podcasts to turn on. Uh, I, on the other hand, was sort of weaned on Ramdas. I loved Ramdas and still do. I'm sorry that he lost his speech, though. He had a stroke, and he's just, he's not what he used to be. Of course, none of us are. But I have literally hours and hours of cassette tape. That's how old these tapes are. They're cassettes. And I stick Ramdas in there. And he has the best stories, and he usually always talks about himself. And he talks about how he screws up. And that was the best teaching for me. Because here was this honest fellow who was regarded as quite a teacher, and yet he would tell you hour after hour how many mistakes he's made in his life, how many wrong things he's said and done, how his understanding of reality has shifted over and over again. That gave me such hope when I listened to those, because I felt, yeah, I screw up all the time too. But it doesn't need to stop me from trying to be a better person. And when he spoke, he spoke with an authenticity that comes from living a life. It wasn't just from reading books. He did his practice. He was in the world trying to make it a better place. And yet he failed occasionally because he wasn't perfect. He wasn't enlightened yet. He's available on audible.com, by the way, if you're interested in hearing Ram Dass speak. And uh, you can download it right into your iPod and take him with you everywhere you go. But when I hear certain people speak, I am impressed. I feel good. I get emotionally connected to them. Billy Graham is one of them. I love to listen to Billy Graham. And sometimes on Channel 40, TBN, they'll have classic Billy Graham videos, 1956, in the tent. 10,000 people, and Billy's up there with his Bible. 
and he's hellfire and brimstone with a heart. And it just comes to him, and he's marvelous. He fills the whole arena with his personality and his words. What a remarkable thing good speech is. It can change the world in such a positive way. And what a remarkable thing unskillful speech is. It can create wars and divisions that take years and thousands of lives to heal and mend. So speech is an important part of the Buddhist path. And we start with what not to say, and then we evolve into what to say, which is another aspect of the Buddhist path that I really liked. It starts with just like our parents were with us. They would tell us, no, 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 a thousand times every day. And finally, we got the message, no, 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 and we didn't do it anymore. Then, after we got to a certain age, our parents started to say, yes, 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 go to school, get an education, get a good job, find a wife, find a husband. And so they went from no, no, no to yes, yes, yes. And that's what the Buddhist path does as well. It starts with now what it starts with what not to do, and then you evolve into how can I have compassionate speech, loving speech, encouraging speech? What do I need to do to produce that? How can I make a difference in people's lives by what I say, not simply by not being unskillful, but by being skillful all the time? So that's part of the path, too. We start with no, and we evolve into yes, just like our parents wanted us to do. Most cool. It's now 8.30. Let's take a few minutes, restrooms, coffee, stretch your legs, and we'll continue with part two. Well, that's it. That was Class 2, Part 1 of a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University. The title of the class was The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. Class 2, Part 2 will be posted soon. Uh, if you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, please visit iTunes under Urban Dharma or my website and dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy. Be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.